Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have Johnny O'Connor, a senior strength and conditioning coach at Connacht Rugby. Johnny is a Galway native who, interestingly, spent a number of years actually playing for Connacht Rugby. Following this professional spell as a sportsman, he worked at Arsenal Football Club before returning home to Connacht Rugby, which brings us to the present day and conversation as you'll hear now. Today's episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard. The Nordboard has become the gold standard for assessing field-based hamstring strength. By combining advanced sensors, real-time data visualizations, and cloud analytics, the Nordboard helps practitioners to accurately measure, monitor, and train individuals' hamstring strength or imbalances. To learn more about the Nordboard, visit our sponsor, valperformance.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Andy McDonald, and here is today's episode between me and Johnny O'Connor. Johnny, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on, mate. Alice, Andy, thanks a million. I'm looking forward to it and uh, sharing a few stories of uh, where I'm at in my career currently. Just in case any of the listeners haven't yet stumbled across you in their career, would you be able to go through your background and, and within that, if you don't mind, um, touching upon your playing career as well, because that, that sets you apart for one of our guests, definitely. Uh, yeah, I think I suppose where my interest became in my current job actually came from my playing career. And uh, look, I played multiple sports in Ireland, rugby, soccer, Gaelic and hurling, etc. But uh, rugby is the one that kind of <laughs> caught me and pulled me in and uh, gave me a great opportunity in life. So I became a professional rugby player when I was around 19 years of age in Connacht, which is in the west of Ireland. And uh, I spent three years there. And then I moved to London Wasps in 2003, 2007, which is another eye-opener for me in terms of what a great high-performance team looks like in an environment. It was, a, it was a great place to be and great memories there and spent four and a bit years there. And then I moved back to Galway to the west of Ireland, uh, home, and played to rugby till around 2013. I suppose interesting part about my career is I spent a significant portion of that on the sidelines, probably about five and a half years at different stages. And... Uh, it's allowed me to spend some time with some really, really good people and practitioners and people that cared. And I would have worked with uh, Ben before when I ruptured my Achilles and I've worked with Alan Ryan, Craig Wright, Des Ryan through different periods and just built really good relations with these guys. And it's kind of just a stemming block for me or stepping stone for me to realize that this is something I would like to go into when I stopped playing. So 2013, all the good things come to an end and uh, I suppose you're told that you're not wanted and you don't feel like chasing chasing it anymore. So I was kind of uh, finished playing rugby and I had done my UKSA accreditation. I had done a degree in strength and conditioning and Des Ryan, who's had coached me before, had just started a job as the head of sports science in uh, Arsenal Football Club. So through a conversation, he asked me to come over and interview for an internship. And I was 33 years of age, basically. <laughs> I have two kids and I said, I'll go and give it a try. And I managed to get that internship. And I said to my wife, well, sure, I suppose there's nothing else really going on. You know, I've got a year to kind of figure out what I want to do. So we went over there and uh, I stayed there for around three and a half years. And then the opportunity to move back into rugby came and uh, I moved from 
Arsenal back to Connacht Rugby and I've been here since but uh, I'm very fortunate in terms of getting the opportunities I had and I think yeah you have a bit of an unfair advantage sometimes being an athlete but I think there's a level of trust for me and I think I have reasonably good character that uh, that's given me that opportunity and uh, I think I've been uh, looked after very well by the people the mentors that helped me out and put me on the right path so uh, I'm still I'm still learning and I'm still really enjoying my job and I think uh, I really enjoy helping athletes both achieve their potential and some of the hard and soft conversations around that sometimes are very fulfilling. Mm. No, no doubt. And I'm not I'm not suggesting that you stand in the middle of the gym and share your war stories, but has it has it made a big difference not only with the players but also with the playing coaches? Does it give you I guess like a, a better use of you know their language their jargon or uh, any kind of rapport that maybe you wouldn't have if you weren't a player has it has it given you some advantages do you think uh, it possibly has but like so <laughs> I, I have to fully re-educate myself like the game has changed and coming back into it even for the three or four years I was gone out of it like there was a lot of relearning for me and what would have worked when I played uh, <clears throat> it may not work now but for me I think there's a far better understanding from the players about the tactical and tactical aspects of their job and how they can get better. And if they need to get better, there's more advice of what you actually need to do. And there is an advantage. I have good empathy with players when things go wrong and you can see and feel from even like when you're talking to players about training load and they feel like the session has been too hard or too soft or whatever, that you can, you, you can, you can gauge with them and realize how to push them as well from from being in their shoes, but at the same time, really realizing that it, it's slightly different than it was previous. Uh, it does give you a bit of scope to have those conversations. And uh, sometimes some of the experiences you've gone through, whether getting injured, getting dropped, going through periods where it's not going well for you. And there's certain ways you can, re- in an environment, react. And I think sometimes as an athlete, when you find you're in that circle and you're bitching about everything, you're probably in the wrong circle and get the fuck out of it. Excuse my language, but uh, <laughs> I, think, uh, I, think, I think it's very important for environment for players to realise that that doesn't help and it's not congruent to actually finding success in an athletic career and dealing with the ups and downs. Of, I think finding dealing with the coaches is 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 excellent in terms because I have a good understanding of the game and a good understanding of the technical and tactical standpoints. That doesn't mean we agree on everything all the time, but I have... I can understand where they're coming from when they need more time. I understand where I have to cut back and they give me maybe a bit more slack than maybe others do at, at times as well. So uh, it does help. Uh, but at the same time, learning the overall function and what good training is, I'm very fortunate that I worked on some really, really good people and the people I can bounce ideas off. And I've no problem ringing someone up and going, what do you think of the situation? How can we change this around to get the outcome we're looking for? So I think I was looking to look outside as well sometimes and just you're able to share with people where you feel you're at and what your worries are and I've just people that I trust that can do that with mm. and how big's your how big's your department at the team and, and and the reason I ask is I guess what I'm curious to know kind of as a part two to this question is do you have an interest in injuries because I, I know the S&C opportunity kind of presented itself to you initially um, but obviously you could you could equally have a uh, an interest in injuries as a as a player that's carried an injury history yourself. Uh, I'm just wondering, do you you know how does your department um, how is it organised, and then do you have an interest in injuries from an S and C perspective? Oh, we would have done originally, so it's kind of it's just kind of changed around over the last year and a half. So uh, Dave Howard's our head of performance. Uh, originally, I was working on look, looking after strength and power, and I was doing uh, the rehabilitation weights and the runs and stuff like that, and then we had. 
or sport, sports scientist Barry O'Brien, who worked after all the GPS data and stuff like that. Um, but I think we kind of found over time that we needed to change and just get someone to look after that piece around rehabilitation. And look, I really enjoyed that part of it. And like, uh, it's, it's great for building relations, really rewarding watching players come back. But ultimately for us, we just changed around the overall structure. So we just let Barry just absolutely look after all the recon and be looking after the weights, the running, uh, liaising with the physios. We thought that was a better point of contact rather than spreading across like three guys, one guy looking after weights, one guy looking after running. Now, I know that people, some departments do that, but we just found that it was going to be better for us in a smaller department to do that. This year, we had uh, another guy, Tom Brady, who was in, who was in on a Aspire uh, graduate program for the last 11 months so he took a bit of slack off in terms of uh, running the gps but also was there to help out with weight sessions and setups etc etc so at the current at the moment dave kind of oversees things i look after the strength and power and i look after the pitch load with the coaches in terms of overall planning so i think with a smaller department sometimes you could have as many people as you want but they can get that kind of collaboration inhibition where there's too many people making decisions so it's an enjoyable place to work it's a great place to get experience and uh there's one thing I definitely say is I definitely feel really supported by the people I work with, so which is a good thing, you know. Mm. And you know, for me, it's been over ten years, I think, now since I've been uh, in a professional rugby environment from a work capacity. Uh, yeah. Definitely not from a playing capacity. And I'm um, I'm selfishly really interested to know how do you, as a department, or how do you, as a coach, um, plan training through preseason and then maybe also um, through the season as well. That's always fun, <laughs> starting it off. Um, we probably planned it slightly differently this year, although not revolutionary, but um, spend more time, because this is the first time I took it over this role from last uh, January, February onwards, so at times to sit down and plan with the coaches, but really trying to get an understanding of uh, what the field coaches were looking for. And yes, we use technology, but basing that as quality control to make sure we're delivering as planned. And I suppose... When you sit with, sit with the coaches, you need to get an idea of, uh, okay, well, <laughs> we have new coaches in this year, so they have new principles of play and how they want to play the game. And there's going to be typical scenarios they want to see in attack and defence and allowing them to kind of set up sessions that will manipulate, I suppose, the constraints of any task to get like the desired behaviours they want to see. And with that also, we're asking, okay, well, what are the limitations of the group of players we have? Whether that be physical, technical, tactical, decision-making process. So deciding, okay, well, what's the most important? And look, the higher level trained athlete we have, like we can, we know the decision tactical making, we define the outcomes we have on the pitch. And same with the coaches and breaking that down and talking about all the different things that can happen in a game, where that's entering contact, passing, carrying, stopping, kicking, cutting, I mean, game-relevant stuff. But we went through that kind of process of, Okay, what do you want? What's that look like? And then we kind of, well, how do we put that together? So stay with me here, Andy, now, okay? No, uh, <laughs> but uh, really simple, starting off, okay, well, duration, so how long is practice? Because we know time on feet and too much of it can have a cause of it and related to injury, but it just no one wants to spend too long on it. So we've gone, okay, we've lined up, okay, what's the duration of a session? What's the duration of a fast session? What's the duration of a long session? What's the speed of that session? What's the density of that session? Is there most rest in that? Okay, what's the space? Are we working in closed spaces, big space? And then what's the level of contact? Because obviously we play a collision sport. I'm trying to working that and building that up. And this is particularly for the preseason and building into in-season. 
And from that, given descriptives, okay, well, we can have a session with control. We can have control and speed. We can add speed, fatigue, and pressure. And then at the end, we had a kind of title of edge work. So I went through all this with the coaches, but like the number kind of one thing I asked them is uh, at the end of preseason, we said, like, what session will challenge the players both physically and mentally and help deliver? the desired behaviours and rugby outcomes to be successful. So looking at that session, what does that look like and how can we build that? Because we don't just want a, a session with great physical outputs without delivering on the desired rugby behaviours and outcomes because we need those to be successful. So we went down and started with that and then we said, okay, we can work back from this and build up to this over a four-week uh, period. Now, our players, in terms of coming off COVID and not really been able to go on holidays, you give them a nice body of work and they'd actually, uh, they'd actually get it done. So when we came in, we were in a really, really good position to start. And we just build from week one in terms of starting off with our duration, which is between 40 and 55. 45 to 60 minutes and then we had our density which is one to three and we worked on small game-based stuff and we had conditioning runs because we weren't which cover longer distance because we weren't getting that from the games and conditions were just control and speed it still was a level of fatigue there and then we'd move to week two in the same timings but that, that density comes down moderate game speed and pressure and then that week three was 40 to 50 minutes and you got moderate to large bases and speed fatigue pressure and then the last week we build up to that week four is the one we defined like it's 30 to 40 minutes there is no fat there's no transitions it's just run 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 small large game base conditioning drills and we're really trying to push into the edge work way beyond game demands but like something beyond that you go god that that is the hardest session i've done in my life and the way we structured that in pre <laughs> the way we structured that in pre-season was just a relatively high low model like we like for the first four weeks we went monday Busy days, rugby first in the morning, then units, clarity, skills, and uh, individual or position specific stuff. So Monday we go pretty hard. Wednesday be moderate to hard, and Friday be hard. Was Tuesdays and Wednesdays would be recovery days. We did those for the first four weeks. We just found we got more out of it rather than have like a low day and a Monday and then a high day and a Tuesday and a Wednesday off. We just got way more quality work out of our players and in terms of our own strength as well. We got. A lot more recovery and seemed to get better bounce back off till we moved into it. And that was uh, that was the preseason. I think in season then is I suppose has been as adaptable as you can when you get there because things change and the biggest thing that changes is the game load, whether that's collision, running load, and types. And we have a relatively I suppose we have forty four players, but we, like yeah, we have players out injured over that. We have, we have a relatively small pool of players to pick from, so a lot of time we're asking a lot of players to play again and play again. So slightly different how we manage that but it's just paying attention to those really kind of acute things from a game sense and making changes if there's a massive amount of collisions in a game and lads come in battered then you know that the contact load is obviously significantly just taken out of the session that week and just reacting to that and then just changing the variance on time and duration and intensity throughout the week and you know that's that's the reality that's the that's how we've worked it at the moment a bit of a, a long answer but uh, i think uh it's been rewarding because we've had significantly lower amount of injuries in pre-season than we've had previous. And we're always pretty good, to be fair, but it's just knocking another 15, 20% off it, which is, which is good. I think we got it right. So, and our players have been in a good spot. No, it's good to hear. And I think I, you know, I personally, I like how you, I guess how you started by kind of describing how you design your program around the task demands of how your, your playing coaches and your, the makeup of your team in terms of playing style, how that, 
how you design it around that versus, you know, just kind of treating rugby as this blanket design for a program. Um, I think that's, I think that's good to hear. Um, what I'm curious about running alongside that, how does, how does monitoring and data um, feed into that system, you know, through maybe through preseason, whether it's on field or whether it's in the gym? Um, like in terms, of, in terms of the on-field stuff, I think it's overall planning, and we'll look, we'll look at we'll look at our, our our loads kind of coming into it. Um, to be honest, the first four weeks we had a, I reckon we had a plan pretty well that was using just to go back and check on okay, is anything obscure in terms of his way out of what we thought it would be? Are we really feel comfortable how we build it? Build it, so we're just keeping track of that. Are we going up? Are we getting up to the bandwidth we want to get to? What's our chronic exposures like? What's our acute exposures like? And making sure that we're not anything outside of the ordinary. But uh, we're relatively happy with that because I think we planned well. And then when we get in season, it just becomes more and more important because those bandwidths become more variable. Because essentially, if you get your planning right, this is is less of a reliant tool. Um, we would utilize in terms of like Dave Howarth, who's the head of performance here, he's doing his PhD through uh, using force decks. A lot of his work is through that and uh, a lot of jump variables that Dave is able to identify and make changes. But overall, like the variables that you have to pay attention to come within season, like unless the lads haven't done the work coming in and we stated like, yeah, they come in and you're ready to go guys at the start of preseason or it's just going to get hurt because we can't wait for you. So, uh, and we had good compliance when we explained that. So in terms of uh, using technology, it's at the start of the front end, we use it, but we use it just basically to make sure we're on track. It's not something that's front and center of our program i think dave does a lot more on it but we try and make it not too much of an over focus for the players overall we'll have our monitoring day to day in terms of filling out your questionnaires uh when you come in and we'll do our jumps in a third um, in season we would do it on um, tuesday and a thursday just seeing how the players are responding just before they come into games but uh other than that we're uh we're pretty we're pretty good in terms of we still have all the other te- testing and databases in terms of like our, our norboard groin squeezes and physical tests as well in terms of identifying where players need to go i mean i think that stuff's become um part and parcel with uh professional environments now hasn't it rather than being a stylistic difference i think it's become the standard to use that stuff uh, no, it has. Yeah, it has. Yeah, it's just I think for, like this is not. This is sometimes you get so tied up in it. So I made a conscious decision to not get too tied up in it this preseason. And you can go, you can you can talk yourself into a corner. So I consciously said like, I'm going to back the plan we came up with, and I'm just going to keep track of it. And then as, as I spoke to Dave, I said if you see anything like I've seen that's coming out and we've gone way over or making this jump, just let me know. And uh, we didn't come to that at all. So that's just the case. I just wanted to see if I could go with this program as a bit of a trial and rightly or wrongly, uh, it, it worked for us anyway, certainly from a preseason sense. I think it's just sometimes you, you restrict yourself and you become so reductionist in the sense of using data sometimes. And you can, you can always find a story somewhere to tell you to stop and slow down. But I felt we needed, really needed to push the players to an edge. And we, as I said, we had that end point we wanted to get to in week four and we got there in relatively one piece. And we think we reaped the benefits of it from a short mm. preseason. Because <laughs> that's it. Basically, you've got a break then and you've got week six and then seven, you're playing preseason games and then the roundabouts, the burger round starts again. You know, one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about, uh, and I think it's one of your interests, I think I'm, if I'm right in saying, and it's definitely something that I share with you in that sense, is 
um, the use of heavy eccentrics during preseason. Um, would you be able to shed some light on this? Maybe if we start with, uh, you know, why you like to use them during preseason first, and then I'll, I'll probe you for kind of how the dosage and maybe the progressions of later. So in, in the first instance, you know, why do you like them? Uh, like overall, I think like there's, there's bang for your buck. Like those preseasons are becoming inherently shorter and, uh, I've kind of a bit of a story in terms of how, how I got there. Like, but look, there's, there's lots of pros and cons to be considered when using these centric trainings, you know, but they can strongly influence other training units, but, uh, and you need to be careful how, like to create a positive impact in performance. You can't just go for it. But for me, I think it's, it's, it's almost the Holy grail because it's a really good way of moving that force velocity curve upwards and to the right. If you get it right with the particular athletes and, if I can tell you, Andy, how I kind of started with it, and like you know, we, we don't have to go through all the different properties of things that change, whether that's faster contrail properties or numbers of sacmers in series. But for me, basically, my I, as I was working in recon, first part of my uh, my my job, I was uh, working an individual who had broken his thumb. Was going to be out for twelve weeks, and. I was sitting with Dave and I was going, oh, he's one of these very kind of floppy athletes and what are we going to do with him? Because there's a lot you can do when you have a broken thumb, to be honest, and your lower limb is good to go. And we just identified, look, so visually you could tell he's kind of floppy, lacks relative stiffness. And uh, we can't, okay, does, does, does the jumps tell that, Dave? And Dave went, okay, look, at his EDF, his eccentric deceleration rate of our ramp. Yeah, he doesn't have good, st- good stiffness levels. Um, although that may be mechanical properties, but... Yeah, that shows that. So we decided to uh, intro super maximal training with him over a three week period. And some of the changes for someone like, and the things I worried about, are we going to burn him? Is he going to be sore? None of those happened, but his rebound was pretty significant after two or three weeks, like jump heights changed significantly and upward trend, his speed changed. Now there was other variables that happened in the program. We did have 12 weeks and we did work in acceleration mechanics, but at the same time, the jump variable, so you saw a massive change in ED, RFD early on, and then you saw a change in jump height and concentric impulse, and all those things shifted up. And it's, it sounds like, as I said to, when I chatted to Dave about it, I was only chatting to get to, again today about it. it. It sounds too good to be true, but it worked for this athlete. So if you have a floppy kind of athlete that, that needs to increase stiffness in spring, then certainly it makes a big difference. But that just led me to running that across the squad the following season for everybody and we saw big changes in lean mass uh we saw some people respond really well we saw some people not respond too well and took a bit long to recover in terms of that concentric concentric impulse and things driving up so there is there is an effect on that but we got to our third year which is this year and we kind of identified the guys that we felt would need it from jump data and identifying okay well if someone's already got good stiffness qualities then What's the point? You're probably increasing the risk and making that making that spring almost uh, two two times. You won't get any bounce back off it or any spring back off it. So uh, that's where we ended up with it, and I think uh, it's been really really rewarding. I find it interesting, and that's only one component of it, but it makes a big difference to our program, and it's something we'll utilize again, but been a bit more uh, specific in who we apply it to. And how do you kind of bridge into it? How do you, like, what's your kind of intro into eccentric, um, you know, rep sets, dosage? How do you kind of build into it for an athlete? 
Uh, well, like during during the, we'd more kind of tempo sets before they come in off the break. So those last two weeks before they come in. So we want to get into it on week one. So we'll just have more controlled sets of like three to five seconds down at sub-maximal load between 80 and 85. Just controlling that down. But um, once we've gone through that period, uh, we'll have a two to three week period, depending. We had three weeks this year. So we'd have uh, just a warm-up set at sub-maximal weights. And then we'd have two sets at two reps at between 110 and 120% of 1RM. And we just have a nice controlled seven-second eccentric, and then we'll get the lads to help them back up and re-rack the bar for 10 to 20 seconds, and then we'll do our second set. And we'll do that on a Monday, and we'll do that on a Friday. And uh, basically all of the program, the same, is relatively the same. But uh, that's how we've got to it. It is kind of scary when you have lads that are quite strong, and we set the kind of range between 110 120. Some lads got to 120, some didn't. But uh, in terms of the kickback from it, from I doing my uh, finishing my masters on this, and this is kind of a component of my uh, thesis. But like, certainly for us, like this preseason, yeah, players definitely got stronger. But like, the levels of fatigue were weren't as high as the lads that were doing the concentric and eccentric up to, up down phase, ascending descending phase. Like so. There is, I think, relatively in terms of bang for your buck and energy expenditure, there is something in it. But that's anecdotal from my point of view. But I think from just working with guys, I think it's it's a nice way to get heavy load for people and look at the adaptation you get, whether they're in neuro or there's changes in fascicle length or whatever it is, even tendon health, increasing collagen content within the muscle. I think it's hugely rewarding. There's so much you can get for it in such a short period. And... Uh, I don't know if traditional strength training can do that. Whether, you know, whether kind of anecdotal or, or whether evidence-based, have you been able to um, sort of highlight or find out from your own experience how long it takes to get, say, the neural adaptation from an eccentric versus how long it's taking you to get the structural changes? Have you, because obviously you, you don't always get tons of time in pre-season. Have you been able to kind of, um, you know, identify which players are getting which type of adaptation? Well, from the, the muscle adaptation, like in terms of greater hypertrophy, is really because lads just put on weight. And uh, yeah, um, but in terms of overall the adaptation, in terms of stiffness, um, you'll see a change in EDR or eccentric deceleration rate for pretty quickly. But you may see that concentric part take longer to come back up in certain individuals now it's very hard to say like eight nine weeks someone all of a sudden starts jumping higher and I'm like i know all it is is a jump but you start to see that concentric in with like eccentric rate of force developed all start to go up so people's jump height starts to increase uh and you can you can tie that to the eccentrics because it does decrease during that period and then all of a sudden it does come back up and go above. But like there's other things happening in the program at that stage as well. Like we've moved over to more kind of contrast models of French contrast or complex or contrast within the program those last couple of weeks of training before we go into the, the start of the competition period. So it's 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 it can be a slow burner for some guys, but I still think there's a reward, even like if you get those even you get those basic changes of Sackmeyers and Assyria and you get you're adding those and increased fascia length and there's some suggestions like that, you know. Sackmeyers and Assyria series has an effect on contraction velocity and that can't be a bad thing. And fascia length, there's a correlation, there's a study in terms of sprints, sorry now, but with sprint performance and although it doesn't define between good or elite sprinters, like it's not a bad thing. It's going to help with performance, and it's just a. Uh, 
identifying the individuals uh, which Dave has been really, really good with in terms of, okay, this guy will respond well to this. These guys will be neutral, but it will help. And then these guys don't touch in terms of if you do this, probably risk the chance of injury. Because, yes, we know stiffness is good and compliance is good and all those, but uh, too much is not a good thing. Mm. And do they take any any space in the program in season because i know you know some people in season will, will in say football or soccer and also in rugby some people will sometimes implement you know very uh minimal dosage sort of nordics or minimal dosage eccentric work do you still build some eccentrics into the in-season program there'll all be nordics anyways in the program or some sort of knee dominant hamstring stuff that demands that, that would demand that but uh, in terms of acutely put in it i would put in one or two players like that maybe kind of your players that are kind of more floppy that just kind of soft and landing just dampening in terms of ground contacts that can help them really quickly and they respond quickly to it i've done that with them when we have a break we have a break coming up so there's a couple of guys that will do a block of eccentrics super maximum eccentrics but uh overall for the squad i haven't just gone down that way so i can't really say Rightly or wrongly, would it make a difference? It's just uh, I'm comfortable enough going with the other stuff. But I, uh, would I be comfortable enough recommending to do it? I would, but it's taken us a while to get there. To One builds, I suppose, uh, the the confidence and the rapport with the players to ask them to go and do it. So players are happy to do it because there is a bit of strain on it. But as I said, I don't think it takes that much out of you. Like if you get it on the right the right guy, like and it's, it's uh, the intervention is for the right athlete. And I guess you know, at the end of the day, over the over the macro, over the the full calendar year of training, you're still getting a very concentrated dose of it for a good sort of adaptation purpose. You know, within the grand grand scheme of your program, it's not necessarily something you don't need to hit all things all the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, you don't like. It's just when we need a bit of a spike. So when we have like at this, the way the competition schedule has worked this way, we're off. We play tomorrow, and then we've got five weeks off so there's a nice development window there but you don't want to try and go crazy with it either like you know there's still rugby so it's not this great snc block of physical you know we we want to get better rugby and there's things we need to work on so you need to make space for that so you can't be over selfish and go like okay i'm gonna have this massively centric block here now we're gonna get this spike in about six or seven weeks time we'll all be flying through the roof and our power and stuff will have gone up but uh (laughs) Uh, an ideal world you kind of you're you're compromising certain things so i'm not prepared to do it yet because I don't know what like people's jump height going. They go when it goes lower. Some people just feel like it's it the psychological and for athletes, obviously, you know, who are competitive, they worry about those things. So maybe it's not something you want to put in within within season. But they can deal with it when you say, "Look, give me eight to ten weeks," and you start to see your jump height go up. And, uh, for a large proportion of squads, that would happen. I know it's only jump height. <laughs> That's only one thing, but it does help uh, psychologically for whatever reason, along with like acceleration as well. But we do a lot of heavy sled work as well, also within season. So um, there's obviously transfers through that in terms of acceleration work. So it's not just eccentrics, but yeah, I feel like as well a lot of players obviously get injured as well during a season. So depend, you know, and depending on what their injury is and what the limitations are, if it was you know a thumb or an upper body based injury, there's no reason why you can't build some significant lower body eccentric work into their program. You just can't necessarily plan ahead for it. You know, you, you need to kind of take those opportunities when they're injured. You can't, you know, map that out ahead of time. 
Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there's when when, you, when the opportunity presents itself. Now it depends how strong someone is. Like you don't, know, is it going to make a difference? But I think ultimately, if we're looking at some of the adaptations that in terms of, like we think of it as a strength and getting stronger, that that can this is not there's nothing bad about getting stronger, but ultimately, like the eccentric strength isn't just about just getting stronger. We're looking at the changes in terms of can we push that force velocity curve up and to the right and the different changes that can happen structurally that would help with that. And we know like there's loads of research around tendon health, etc. etc. in terms of like where's the base and therapeutic work around that. Like that there's there's so many good things about eccentrics outside of the performance aspect as well also. Like so it's just uh for me it's something that will stay in my program for 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 evermore at the moment until uh, something changes. But uh at the moment, I think it's I think it's, it's a great way to utilize in terms of performance and health, and uh, I think it gives the players a bit more longevity if you get it right. Mm. Johnny, I'm aware of time today. I know you've got a busy time, probably work wise now and and moving forwards. Where's the best place for people to follow you online? Uh, you can follow me on uh, Twitter. It's uh, at uh, Johnny J O H N N Y O C seven. Um, uh, follow more of my likes, to be honest. And if anyone wants to contact me in terms of talk further what i've shared uh i'm happy to do so so uh yeah there's no panic i actually don't know if i tweet anything i haven't tweeted in a while but uh i'm more of kind of like and follow and uh regurgitate the information that's out there cool perfect well mate thank you very much for coming on today's show and yeah it's been good to meet you uh over the internet and also just good to chat today cheers man thanks a million andy thank you Big thanks to Johnny for coming on the show and sharing both his story and also some technical insights on how he practices as a coach. We recently hosted our first live event, which was a course on the sporting hand and wrist with Ian Gat from GB Boxing. If you're a medical professional or a physio and would like to upskill on the hand and wrist, then head over to our education page on informperformance.com where you can find our sporting hand and wrist series. Don't worry if you missed part one, you can now find the recording of that first event for you to enjoy in your own time, also giving you time to catch up before part two in January. As I said, head over to informperformance.com to find our courses, where you can also find articles and previous podcast episodes. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Informed Performance podcast. Catch us next time for more performance and sports medicine insights.